I wanted to see what the ingredients were on a, on a bottle of water. Sometimes there's sodium in there. That's why I was checking. Which dries you out, actually, rather than giving you refreshment. Romans chapter 9. Last week we looked at 1 through 5. And this week we're going to start off by looking at 6 through 13. 9 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from, the, from Israel uh, being, belong to Israel. And not all of children of Abraham, because they are his offsprings. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived uh, children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And you're all just waiting, wondering, I can't wait to get to verse 13 to find out, why did he hate Esau? It's one of those questions when you come to Romans 9, why did he hate Esau? Well, hold on, we'll get there in in just, just a few minutes. Let's pray first. Father, open our hearts to to your word today. Lord, I pray you'd give us understanding through the Spirit who would enlighten your your word. And Lord, that through that we would see need in our life and apply your truth to become more in the image of Christ for your glory's sake. Amen. You know, as last week we began to look into one of the great sections of the book of Romans, 9 through 11, those three chapters. And we began in the first five verses to kind of wade into the, the deep waters. Uh, they're, they're the deep waters of doctrine that we're going to find ourselves in in the next few weeks. I'm thankful that Paul, once again, anticipated an objection from those who would be reading this letter in Rome and took time under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write an answer to that objection in, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Uh, because if he hadn't done so, we wouldn't have this great three chapters, especially Romans 9, on the doctrine of sovereign election. If you were asked, where would you go in the Bible? Someone asked you, where would you go in the Bible to show us that the Bible teaches God's sovereign election? Where would you take somebody? Where, where would you open your Bible and I think for those of you who know Scripture fairly well, you would say, well, that's, that's kind of a no-brainer. I'd go to Romans chapter 9, because that is the go-to chapter in the area of God's election. Now, Paul, being a good teacher, anticipates um, the objection of the readers, especially the Jewish readers of his day. And I'm glad as a good teacher that he, when he, he anticipates objections, he brings answers. That's what a good teacher does. And uh, what was the objection that he anticipated before he wrote nine? I think it's something like this. 
he could hear the voices of the Jews saying, Okay, Paul, I have been tracking you through the first eight chapters of this book of Romans, where you set out to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've read, and I believe I understand, this this glorious doctrine of justification by faith. I understand in the last chapter where you talked about it began with the foreknowledge of God, God foreloving a people before the foundation of the world. That resulted in their predestination to become like Jesus. And that resulted in their calling, and their calling into their justification, and their justification into their glorification, right? I understood all of that. But here's, my, here's, our, here's our objection. Aren't we God's chosen people? I mean, didn't he make a promise to Israel? Didn't he promise to love us? Didn't he choose us amongst all the people of the world and all the nations of the world to be his people? Then why is it then, if this gospel is so glorious, the Jews, we, remain in unbelief? What happened to the promise you made, God? You made a promise that we'd be your people. And now you say the Messiah has come. And the Messiah has come, and your people have rejected your Messiah. The Messiah. I mean, why did the Jews reject Christ? Paul, how do you explain this rejection of the Jews? What happened to the promise of God? Did they fail? That's the objection that he's hearing here. And he's going to give an answer to that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now, last week we opened up with the first five verses of Romans 9, and then we saw the transparent heart of the Apostle Paul as he was sharing with his his readers, especially the Jews, uh, his heart of compassion. He said, I want you to know something. I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth, he said. I'm in much anguish when I see my fellow Jews not trusting in Christ. I mean, if it were possible, I wish I could be accursed on their behalf. Uh, I'm in such anguish, I I would just soon be cut off from being a a Christian and and allow you to stand in my place and be forgiven and have everlasting life. Of course, that's not possible because once you're in Christ, you're in Christ. But at least you see the heart of Paul as he begins to open up this chapter. Today we're going to see that the Jews' rejection of the gospel is not inconsistent with the promises God made to the Jews. In fact, uh, the very reason God's promises regarding salvation will not fail is because of the doctrine of what we would call sovereign election. Sovereign election is what makes his promises sure. In fact, if it wasn't for sovereign election, God's promise of salvation would fail. It would fail to the Jews. It would fail to us. The reason we're secure in Christ is because he chose us before the foundation of the world. Now, I know the very mention of the doctrine of election, doctrine of sovereign election, uh, to some people strikes up a note of controversy in your heart and, and maybe even a sense of uh, indignation. Sometimes when the, when the word sovereign election is heard uh, in, a, in the church, there, there are strong emotions by those who hear it. I mean, the very idea that God would be a God who would choose some to salvation and, and pass overs to their own, to their own destruction it seems absolutely foreign to their understanding of God. 
and his purposes of salvation. It's contrary to their view of God. It's contrary to their view of man. And perhaps some of you here might be thinking, why do you even have to bring up such truths in in the service? Why do you preach on the doctrine of sovereign election? If it is divisive, if it is something that people squabble over, why, why preach it? Well, the answer is because it's found in the Word of God. Amen. It's found in the Word of God, and it's not in some remote verse of a minor chapter in the Old Testament. Once your eyes are open to look to Scripture and your hearts are open, you see it almost on every page of Scripture. From the Old Testament all the way to the, uh, through the New Testament, you'll see that God is a sovereign God who chooses a people to be unto himself and to love those people and to die for those people and save their souls. It's, uh, it's taught throughout God's Word. Spurgeon said this, No doctrine is more... And the whole Word of God, word of God has excited the hatred of mankind than the truth of God's absolute sovereignty. And I don't know why that is. One of the most precious doctrines for some people is the most hated of doctrines. This is one of those teachings of Scripture that we must preach. And we must preach it with a heart of humility. This is not a doctrine we preach with with arrogance. To fully grasp it, uh, it really requires God's grace. If any of us understand the doctrine of election and appreciate it and love it because it's taught in the Word of God, God has opened our eyes and our understanding, and by His grace, we are allowed to understand this truth. If you fully grasp it, it will result in, in God's grace, and, uh, and we want to preach it with humility. You know, it was commonly believed by the Jews that the promises that God made Abraham extended to every Jew, to every one of the descendants, to all Jews by birth. And if you were sealed by circumcision as, as a Jew, that you would inherit all the messianic promises of God, uh, that, that God would be your, your God and you would be his people forever, and that God would be pleased with you and you'd be the recipient of all of his promises. So here's the question. Does their rejection of Christ Does the rejection of the Jews of Christ mean that God's promises have failed? See, that's the question he's dealing with. In other words, has all of God's promises towards the Jew failed because the Jews have rejected Christ? And the answer that Paul's going to give us clearly here is absolutely not. No, no, no. In fact, we start, look at our first point here. We look at Paul's affirmation of the promises in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now here the word of God might be better translated the promises of God. Because that's what we're talking about. It's not as though the promises that God has made to the Jews have, has failed. Yes, the Jews are God's people. Yes, God has made them kingdom promises. Yes, they are the promised people of God. Yes, they... Uh, if observation would be correct, they have rejected Christ. And how do we explain that? How do we explain that rejection? Well, uh, we're going to see the promise of God has not failed. No, it has not failed, even though the Jews have rejected Christ. And no man, and Paul speaking, you know, my preaching of the good news does not conflict with any of the promises that God has made. 
And how can this be? There seems to be a contradiction here. This is what Paul's going to be resolving through the next few verses. The contradiction is this. God, you promised to be our God and send the Messiah, and the Messiah would save a people, and all your people have rejected you, therefore your promises have failed. It seems to be, and now Paul's saying, no, the promises have not failed. You say, well, that, that seems to be a contradiction. But if anything, it's an apparent contradiction. You know, Jeremiah 32, 42 reminds us that uh, Paul says, so I will, or Paul says, Jeremiah reminds us, I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. God's never turned his back on his promises to his people. This is an apparent contradiction. And then how do we resolve the contradiction that appears here? Why is there, in fact, no, um, that God has not turned his back on his promises? And so we see that our second point is that God brings a clarification of the promises that were made and who they were made to. You see, here's the, here's the solution. The promises that God gave to Israel were never intended to be to all of the seed of those people who would call themselves Jews. They would, it was not meant to apply to all the natural descendants of Abraham the bloodline of Abraham, the bloodline of Jacob. Look what he says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And God's promises are true for Israel, that is for spiritual Israel, but not all that we call Israel is true Israel. Now, I don't want you to get lost here. I want you to stay with me. Maybe a, you know, kind of a graphic picture would help you understand that you have Israel, all the descendants of Jacob, all the descendants of Abraham, anyone who is a blood, in the bloodline of them would be called a Jew by what? By birth, by blood. Even nationally, as, as a nation. But within that great big group we call Israel, there's another Israel. There's a true Israel. There's a spiritual Israel. The ones to whom God brought the promises to. And that's what, that, that's what Paul is saying here. He's going to be developing that, that picture for us to see. There's a smaller, smaller spiritual Israel within the bigger ethnic Israel. And there's physical Israel. There's Jews that are Jews because they were born Jews. There's ethnic Israel. And the promise wasn't made to all of them. But inside of the ethnic Israel, there are, there are Jews who are, in fact, uh, elect Jews, spiritual Jews, who are being saved. Uh, Galatians 4.29 says, But just at, at the time who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. You know, if, maybe I could give you an illustration. We, we use the same analogy within the church of Jesus Christ today in the New Testament. We have those who are made up, make up what we call the visible church. Are you familiar with that term? Uh, if you want to take that term and apply it to Redeeming Grace Church here this morning, uh, the visible church is everybody that's here today. You know, they say, well, is everybody at church at Redeeming Grace Church? Yeah, the, everyone's there. That's the visible church. But within the visible church, there's an invisible church. And the invisible church are those who what? Who've been truly saved who have received the Lord Jesus Christ, who are not just here for religion, 
but here because they've been born again and, and they're new people in Christ. And so you have a group within a group. You have the church made a mixture, believers and unbelievers who all identify with being what? Believers, but they're not. But within that group, you have the true believers, a small subset of true believers, and, and those are the ones who the promises were made to, uh, who were Jews spiritually. All descendants born of Jacob are called Jews, but not all of the true Jews are spiritual Jews, but only those who are born again. Now, to make this point clear, he actually gives us two illustrations to drive this point for us. Uh, one we're going to see is, is, is from the life of Abraham and his two sons. And we're going to see the other is uh, also is from the life, life, life of uh, two sons, uh, Jacob I love, Esau have I hated from, from, uh, from Isaac. Let's look at the first illustration to prove his point. Abraham and his sons, father uh, of the Jews, you might expect him uh, to be the father of the Jews. From his lineage would come everyone who would be converted. And all the promises God made to the Jews would apply to all of his seed. Look at verse 7. But that's not so. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. You see that? In other words, just because they're their offspring doesn't mean they are the children of Abraham. Uh, not all of the children of Abraham, that is, the sons of God, the spiritual sons of God, are, are the offspring uh, of, 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 uh, of Abraham. The point is, no one's born a believer. Abraham's first son, his name was what? Remember? Abraham's first son in his old age was Ishmael. Okay, and he was born of Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, the Egyptian handmaid. And you know the backstory. You know, we all know the backstory. It's, uh, I will make you into a great nation, we see in Genesis 12, and I will bless you, and I will make your, your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will bless, I will curse, and all people of the earth will be blessed through you. And so we see this covenant that God made with Abraham. Sarah, being about 75 at this point, decides, you know what, if God's going to answer this, uh, this promise and make it true for us, we're going to need some help. Because she was, you know, she was old, uh, 75, probably way beyond childbearing years, and it was her idea that well, maybe we can have Hagar, my handmaid, be the one that's going to help fulfill this promise. But what we're going to see is, is that from the seed of, of Abraham, uh, who was in fact uh, uh, Ishmael, he's not going to be one of God's elect. He's not going to be part of the spiritual Israel. He might be physically uh, related to Abraham, but not spiritually related to God. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now Ishmael was not God's choice. God's choice was Isaac who would actually be born to Sarah. And God's choice was for Abraham's secondborn to be the one who would be the recipient of the promises of God. Uh, in other words, just because you were a natural descendant of Abraham 
does not secure you a position of promise with God. Doesn't mean you're going to have a spiritual blessing. Now, God, by common grace, was very good to Ishmael, but Ishmael was not a part of the spiritual blessing that went to the descendants of Abraham. God chose spiritual Israel. God elected spiritual Israel. Uh, your offspring, spiritual elect, shall be named or called, he says here. And of course, after Sarah's death, do you know what happened? He remarried again, and this time he married Keturah. And Keturah had six more sons. So now in, in, in total, we know we have six more. We have, uh, we have Isaac, and we have uh, also Ishmael. So we have, a see, six, one, and is that eight? Eight children. Eight from his seed. Uh, and, and yet we only see one who is elect. One out of the eight. One who is elect who is what? Isaac, yeah. Who's Isaac? And so you see Paul's point here. All the children of Abraham are not, in fact, spiritual children of Israel. or all the children of, of, of God, but only one, the one that God chose. He, he's the smaller in the, in the larger group. And so Paul's thinking, well, if you haven't picked up what I'm saying yet, let me repeat it again in verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. It's not the descendants themselves that receive all the spiritual blessing, but those who are children of God, who are chosen by God and given, and, and given His grace. This means that, let me explain it further, he says, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. It's, the, it's not the physical offspring who are the children of God. But within the physical offspring, uh, we're going to see God has elected a people who are the real spiritual Israel and God sovereignly chose each and every one of them. But the children of promise are counted as offspring. So they're counted as Jews in this subset of the bigger group called the ethnic Jews. So God's elect, our believers, are, our true, are true children of God and heirs of the promise. And so it is today. This is, is still true today. We have an illustration from the Old Testament. But the children of God are not those who are born of what? Saved parents. Because you're, because you're saved doesn't mean your, your children are going to all be saved. Even though they're, they're, they're within your lineage, they're, they're your blood relationship. But within that group that's born of you as Christian parents, you might have five kids, three kids, two kids, four kids. There could be one that's saved. There could be two that's saved. They all could be saved. But it's within the sovereign providence of God and his choosing, his divine choosing, who in that group is saved and comes to Christ. John 1.12 makes this very clear. We see, but to all who did receive him, Christ, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God, who were born not of the bloodlines, not because their father and their mother were Christians, nor the will of their flesh, not because they were able to work their you know, believe their way into the kingdom, nor of the will of man, that is by their efforts and works, but solely of God. They were saved of God. Thus God's word is, never fails. God's, God's promise never failed. Paul's making that point. Because every one of the spiritual Jews that were chosen by God will in fact be saved. 
There was a remnant within the broader group we call Israel. So Paul explains God's promise he's, he's made to Abraham, again in verse 9, for this is what the promise said, Genesis 18.10, 18, but this time, next year, I will return, and Sarah will have a son, and he will be my elect son. He will be the one who receives all of the promises that I have made, not all the other children. Ishmael, born of Hagar, Hagar, not the son of promise. Isaac will be the son of promise. And God chose to save Isaac. And he did so through a miraculous birth, didn't he? I mean, when you think about it, what, she, I think she's in her 90s. She's having a child. It's an amazing story. But there's a second illustration that's even, I think, more amazing. And that is the, that is the story of Jacob and Esau, those two sons. Verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So there's the picture. We have the picture of a marriage. We have Isaac uh, married to uh, Rebekah. And they had children, and plural. In fact, they were what? Twins. They had twins. And this, this makes the whole argument of election even more remarkable. Here's the picture. Consider Jacob and Esau. And not only so, but also Rebekah had conceived children, or twins, by one man. Same parent this time, not two different parents. Same womb. Same time. Yes, I know that uh, you know, one came out sooner than the other, but basically twins born at the same time. I don't think they were identical twins by the way they were de- described in Scripture. So they probably didn't have the same D- DNA exactly. But these were two children. They were born in equal, equally, equal times, equal heirs. But God chose one over the other. And the question is, on what basis did God choose Jacob over Esau? Was there something in Jacob that, that God saw that, hey, this, I'm going to choose this one. I'm not going to choose that one because he's a bad guy. No, Paul's answer is no. Instead, what did he do? Verse 11, though they were not yet born, this is when God chose Jacob over Esau, when they were not yet even born and had not even done either good or bad. So it wasn't anything in their life that, that made God choose one or the other. They hadn't done bad, they hadn't done good, it was before they were born. God says, Jacob will be the recipient of my promises. And so God decided their spiritual destiny before they were even born. He sovereignly chose Jacob and passed over Esau. It was his sovereign choice. Both were born at at about the same time. Esau born slightly before Jacob. Same father, same mother. And he chose them without consideration of what they would do or or whether they'd be good or bad. And so the choice of God is sovereignly made in the salvation of a soul. Uh, It was a promise made before their birth. And we don't know why God would choose one over another. It's a mystery. But the Bible's clear that Esau and his descendants rejected God in, in, in their life after their birth. But what about Jacob? Was Jacob a winner? 
I mean, so God chose him before he was born. He elected him before he was born. He came into this world before he'd done bad or good. And what kind of a guy did he turn out to be? Well, I mean, there's a story about him, him and his mother and conspiring about the, uh, the birthright of his father. They deceived a blind man. They deceived a blind man. I mean, is God condoning sin by, by choosing this one over the other? And the answer is no, because it's all based on God's sovereign choice. It is not based on what they did, not, not whether they did good or bad, but on God's purposes. And so we get a little glimpse into why he would choose one over the other when he goes on to say, in order that the purpose of election might continue. What purpose? What purpose is there in God choosing one and passing over another? What is his purpose? What is his plan? Well, his purpose is his sovereign will. And that's all I can say. It's his good pleasure. His purposes are always good. They're always holy. They're always God-glorifying. But they're in the mystery of his purpose. And his kindness. So God, too, was choosing some Jews over the other. His elect to salvation, but not to, not to all. You know, those who deny that Romans 9 want to get around this idea of election and salvation argue, well, this, this isn't talking about personal salvation. This isn't talking about God dealing with individual destinies of, of people. Uh, it's not that kind of election. It, it, it's more of an election of, of, of a people in their relationship to God, uh, collectively. Uh, they would argue that uh, election, they would argue, is describing here is not eternal life, but a bl- the blessings that come from living in the theocracy or the earthly kingdom of God. But as you look through uh, the, the, and, and respond to this argument... I think you have to reject that viewpoint and see that God is talking about individuals and He is talking about individual salvation. I mean, first of all, you've got to look at the broader context of, of, of chapter 9. Uh, this fits right in the middle of, of the, whole, the whole book of, of Romans. And Romans is dealing with personal salvation. We saw that from the very opening chapter. It, it goes through what is personal salvation? What is justification by faith? What does it mean to be foreknown, predestined, to be chosen, to be justified and ultimately glorified? That's all on an individual salvation. And then he hears the objection, and so he's responding to their objection, and it's in the context of speaking of God electing certain people unto salvation. Uh, This seems to be the broader context of the whole book, and it should fit within that context. Rather than how individual sinners might be made right with God by grace through justification by faith, God chooses individuals, brings pardon and purity and holiness and eternal life. He saves. In Murray's commentary on this chapter, he writes, Paul's use of election used of individual salvation to everlasting life. That was his conclusion. I think he's right. The elect in Scripture usually refers to individual elect, not to a collective elect unto some other purpose. 
So as we applied here, uh, we, we see that uh, it's, it applies to individuals. It's not because of the works that they've done or not done, but because of Him who calls. And that's the effectual call of God. The custom of the day was that the firstborn, by the way, would get all the blessings. Sorry, Matt, but uh, you, know, you do have Stephen standing in the way. Firstborn gets the blessing. And uh, what you have here is God electing and giving the secondborn the blessing, not the firstborn. So he's going against the, the custom of the day. So there's hope, Matt. Uh, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Now this, this winds up this section of, uh, of God's promises not failing. And he closes by telling us that Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And again, he's quoting from Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. This is a hard verse, isn't it? Why is this verse a hard one? We've seen some hard ones already, but why is this one especially a difficult one? You know, I think it's because none of us like to think of God actually hating anybody. We look at His divine attributes. We talked about them during Sunday school this morning, and we quick to speak of His love. I mean, does God hate people? I mean, it seems contrary to God being an impartial God, a loving God. And you go through and you read all the various views on God loving one, hating another. The word hate seems to be the word that we normally use for hate. Uh, love would be the word agape. Well, from agape would be the, the, the word that we use for God loving his people. But what does it mean that God hated Esau? Does God hate those whom he doesn't choose? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. You know, a student uh, in seminary of uh, Dr. Griffith Thomas uh, asked the question to the professor, what does hatred mean? So a student said to Dr. Griffith Thomas that he was having trouble with the passage because he could not understand why God would hate Esau. And Dr. Thomas answered and said, I am having a problem with that passage too. But mine is different. I don't understand why God loved Jacob. See the problem? What does it mean, hate? Well, again, it's the normal word for hate. This is where I ended up. You know, you can study this more yourself. Maybe, maybe it lands in a different place. But I think you're on pretty good safe turf by saying that the Apostle Paul is using the word hatred here as a relative negative term uh, to show two extremes. Uh, a relative term in Romans 9.13, Jesus used the same word in, in a similar way when he said a person who loves me must also what? Hate his mother and father. Now, is he commanding us to go out and hate our mom and dad so that we can love Jesus? No, because that would be a violation of what? The Ten Commandments. Uh, the commandments are to love. Love one another and love God. And so we believe as we look at that passage, we would say, well, what Jesus is saying, he's saying that your love for me must be so extreme, must be so in love with me, that your love for your parents, which is good, would, would seem like hatred. It's, it's that kind of a, 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 an extreme uh, comparison or contradiction that he's, that he's raising here. 
He's not encouraging us to, to hate our parents any more than we're saying that God actually hates the, the person who is without Christ. It's called a hyperbole of antithesis. Jesus is saying that the love of a man for, for Christ ought to be to dwarf the love for his father to the extent that the latter would seem to be hatred. And perhaps that's how we might best understand that last passage. Let's see if we can wind this up uh, this morning. If Jews are God's chosen people, and they are, why did they reject him? Did his promise fail? How do we explain their unbelief? And the answer is no. God's promises never failed. See, the problem is who, who, he's, who we're speaking of when we speak of Israel. Not all of physical, physical Israel is spiritual Israel. And so we consider God's choice. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. God chose Jacob over Esau. When there were twins, before they did anything wrong, God's pleasure was to save Jacob. He loved Jacob and he hated Esau. So this kind of introduces us into this doctrine of election. We're going to look more into this in the next few weeks uh, in more specific detail. But I want to just close by reminding us this is an important doctrine. And and Paul is underlying how important this really is. Because, you see, divine election, sovereign election, is absolutely essential to your salvation. Why are you saved? Because of the promises of God. How do you know those promises are going to be true? It's because God chose me before the foundation of the world. If I had chosen God and I could walk away, then how can those promises remain true as they relate to me? You know, I really believe Spurgeon summed this up well when he says, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for the reasons unknown to me for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with a special love. So I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine, the doctrine of election. So I'll see if I can draw a couple applications that might help us from this passage today. And I think the application, first of all, falls on you parents that are here with children. You see Jacob and Esau. You see mom and dad. You see a God who's sovereign over their children. And many believe that uh, the sovereignty of God's unjust. But I believe if we take this passage and apply it to your family with your children, I think we're on safe grounds to say that God is actually saying that none of your children are going to be saved because they're born of you, because they're born of mom and dad. There's no salvation in blood, there's no salvation in lineage. Salvation is based on God choosing a people before the foundation of the world, before these children were even born. 
And there's nothing you can do to unwind that. That's God's providential, sovereign choice for your family. Now, here we are in time and space, and now we have X number of children. We don't know which ones God's going to save and which one God's not going to save. I mean, God could save every one of our children. Wouldn't that be a blessing? Oftentimes, He's that God that does that. You could have a big family, and He saves one, and leaves six to, to their own destruction. See, where it becomes difficult to say, it's easy to sit in church and say, okay, I affirm the doctrine of sovereign election. I believe it. It's a wonderful thing. Now bring it in close to your family life and apply it there and see whether you're willing to apply it and believe it within your own home. I mean, the fact of the matter is God has chosen who He's going to save in our family. It's His choice. We don't know what that choice is. He hasn't revealed it to us. So what has He given us to do as parents? Well, He's given us means. He's given us the ordinary means that we need to be faithful to. And those are the means that He uses to bring in His elect into salvation. And so some of those means are faithful prayer for your children. You know, it's bringing the gospel to them faithfully and regularly. It's bringing them to worship and and gathering on the Lord's Day with, with God's people. It's carving out a time during the the week to have family worship with your family. It's applying godly discipline in your home in a way so the children understand at an early age there's consequences for violating the law of God. And again, you pray even more for them. And those are the means that God has given you as parents. And then ultimately what we have to do is to what? Leave them in the hands of Almighty God, in a sovereign God, in a good God, in a loving God, who's doing all that's best for His own glory, and even for the good of you and your family. Now, that's a hard teaching. It's very hard. But on the other hand, I believe that that's the only place you're going to find real comfort and understanding as you look at God's divine purpose and plan in your family. You trust Him to work out His eternal purposes. And that might not happen all at once. You know, it might not just happen suddenly and, you know, they're all turn 18, they walk out of the home, you know, saved, baptized, serving the Lord. It doesn't always work out quite that way. But you trust Him. You know, I also think this has practical application for any of you who might have prodigal children. Those who grew up in the faith, who might have professed faith once in Christ, who walked away from the faith and are walking off in rebellion. And, you know, that's a hard place to be as a parent. We have been there. And we we understand what that means. It's one of the biggest heartaches, I think, of, of of any parent. And so you think of the prodigal child... And I'll tell you what what makes it really hard is because you begin to think, well, I really blew it as a parent. Boy, if I would have done this, things would have been different. If I would have done that, I could have been better. If I only would have done that, oh, I really messed up here. And you can put guilt on yourself as a parent, and it's just crippling. The The guilt is actually crippling. But if you realize that, you know, I took the means that God has given me. I did the best I could as a parent. 
Could I have done better? Absolutely. Well, God only gave me one shot at this, not two. And so in the process, God is a sovereign God. And he's going to take the means that, uh, that the, of our family life and use them for his sovereign purposes. And you can rest in that. You can rest in that as a parent. And to me, I find great comfort, uh, great encouragement. I've often thought, you know, we had seven kids, and we do have seven kids, and I thought, you know, if their salvation was up to us, what would happen? They'd all be lost. (laughs) But it's up to a sovereign God who changes hearts and brings life and brings salvation. And so... This is where I see the the great application for this within the family, at least this passage. And I pray that as you look this passage over, you'll find encouragement in your own family life as well. Be faithful to the means that God has given you. Those are the means that God works out His sovereign will in the life of your children. And then, you know what? Leave it in His hands. Leave it in His hands. He can do a good job, a better job than we all can. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for once again speaking to us on a more deep and practical level, Father. It's one that, uh, it's, it's a mystery to us. We don't fully understand the depths of your sovereign will. We confess we don't really understand uh, why you would providentially choose one over another. All we know is it's amazing, as this, uh, as this professor said, that you would save anybody, that you would love anyone. But in your kindness, you have. You've made promises to a people that are backed by your sovereign will. And we rest in that as your people. We praise you in the name of Christ. Be merciful to the children that are here, Lord, with parents. Lord, I pray you'd open their hearts to see their individual need. Lord, entrusting in you and you alone for salvation. Lord, uh, gift them with the gift of everlasting life. Through your Son, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.